Professor Noam Chomsky is an eminent scholar in the field of linguistics, uh, full professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but perhaps is best known these days as the most perceptive and courageous social and political critic. His recent book issued by Vintage, American Power and the New Mandarins, consists of historical and political essays dealing primarily with the intellectual and his role, these traumatic and unprecedented days. Uh, one of the chapters deals with A.J. Musty, revolutionary pacifist, so described by Professor Chomsky. I thought perhaps, before hearing our guest, the voice of A.J. Musty, when I had asked him a question about Churchill being chosen by Time magazine as man of the half century, a time in which Mahatma Gandhi also lived, A.J. Musty, during the week of his 80th birthday, replied, and I think that uh, one of the symbols of uh, the significance of what is happening in our time is that it is precisely in the age of Winston Churchill, let's say on the one hand, and Lenin on the other, who are exemplars of uh, violence in an extreme sense, and I don't mean by that as individuals, that is precisely in this period that we also have Mahatma Gandhi. I think there's no question that for the future historians, the people who will stand out uh, in our period will be, on the one hand, Mahatma Gandhi, and on the other hand, the two figures who fought each other, so to speak, uh, in the Western world, and who are the exemplars of the violence into which we have moved uh, namely Lenin and Winston Churchill. And I think uh, also in this uh, connection, uh, it is significant that uh, Churchill, who was uh, a very great war leader and uh, exemplified the virtues of heroism and of persistence, nevertheless, uh, having said that he would not preside at the liquidation of the British Empire, actually did have to witness the liquidation of the empire for which he had fought so nobly and the great qualities of which he had exemplified. Isn't this interesting? Uh, the 20th century has seen the end of an empire that uh, Sir Winston represented. Then he is not really, if the 20th century is one that can see the end of all man thanks to nuclear bombs, at the same time thanks to nuclear energy, the beginning of something new, then it's not a man of war, but a man of peace who might be the 20th century man. Yes, I think that that uh, is, uh, as a matter of uh, just uh, simple, uh, stark fact, uh, what uh, has to happen in the 20th century. Uh, given, on the one hand, uh, the technological weapons with which we can wipe mankind out several times over, and given, on the other hand, the closeness in which men live, and the instrumentalities of uh, domination which we have in the means of communication and in the new psychology and so on, uh, we are either, in one way or another, going to destroy man, or we are going to see, I think, the development of a new man who will have left behind the violence, the domination, because there will be so many ways, not only in a physical sense, uh, that he won't be confronted with uh, hunger anymore and so on, the lack of a place to live in, but so many ways in the intellectual and in the spiritual sense in which human beings can find fulfillment that we shall... As you listen to the voice of A.J. Musty, Professor Chomsky, I'm sure many thoughts come to your mind, particularly the theme of the intellectual, the person who seems to know more than other people since he seems so privileged. This is one of the recurring themes of your series of essays. It's been described as a, a first draft of a new declaration of in independent intellectual independence. Well, I guess the main thought that comes to my mind is uh, that Musty himself would have been a very strong candidate for great American of the 20th century. And also he indicates what, uh, how, the, uh, how different are the categories of 
expert and the category of intellectual. I mean, Musty was a uh, was an intellectual par excellence. He was a uh, he was a serious thinker and a person who put his thoughts into action with deep principle and with uh, uh, a, a great conviction and understanding. Yet he would never, I, I doubt if he, uh, he certainly never was an assistant professor anywhere. Well, that point itself, that uh, one of your first essays in the, in the book, uh, American Power and the Mandarins, deals with the university. And Senator Fulbright spoke of it uh, by default, allowing itself not to challenge the military and industry, whereas that is obviously its natural role. Yes, I think one of the great tragedies of the American university uh, since the Second World War, and uh, pointed out very, very properly and correctly by Fulbright, is that it has, to some extent, abdicated its role of uh, uh, of being an independent, uh, analytic, critical voice, uh, where ideas are studied on their merits, uh, free from the political controls of the of the state or the uh, controls of the of other centers of power, private power in the society. And of course, it's very ironic that. While this has happened, uh, the myth has grown that the universities are free from, uh, from control. And it's striking that now that students have become aware and awakened to this and are trying to redress the balance and to, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to return to what in fact is the liberal, classical liberal ideal of the university, namely an institution free from the control of, of, uh, of religion, of, of state, of private power, when this has happened, the uh, there's a great outcry that the students are trying to politicize the universities. Actually, what they're doing is to trying to restore them to their uh, position of uh, uh, independence of, of, of uh, external, of civil authority. You point out in that first essay, objectivity, that word, and liberal scholarship, mm -hmm. that the, the attack on the students or the challenge to the students, that they're too emotional, quite irrational, whereas the scholar, the senior faculty member, is objective in his approach, detached. Well, <laughs> they are detached, and uh, they are detached from to, uh, the kind of people I was talking about there are detached from any uh, human response to the kind of uh, uh, horror that they are creating. Uh, frankly, I would much, although uh, I don't like to see emotional and irrational uh, reactions, uh, I certainly do feel that one should feel, should, uh, I don't see how one can fail to feel extremely uh, to have a very strong emotional reaction to this, uh, to the kind of atrocity that's been manufactured by these independent scholars. Maybe Descartes ought to be paraphrased, I think, therefore I am. I mean, I <laughs> feel, therefore I am. Feel, therefore I am. Well, I, I feel, therefore I decide I better think. I think that would be a... <laughs> but but you, you sort of shadow the myth of objectivity is the point, that they're not really objective as concerns, of course, our adventures overseas. They work objectively within a framework of assumptions, which is not challenged. And the framework of assumptions is uh, such is is in effect a uh, a colonialist uh, framework. That is, they objectively try to uh, to maximize American to find the means which will most efficaciously maximize American power. Uh, within that framework, I'm sure they work in a very objective fashion. But of course, the framework gives away the whole story framework itself. We'll come to the question of euphemisms and, and or reality and surreality. But you quote on page six, this is Randolph Bourne. So mm -hmm. your, your, your essays also are called historical essays. Yes. And so it isn't the first time, this is a quote, the war has revealed a younger intelligentsia trained in the pragmatic dispensation, immensely ready for the executive ordering of events, and goes on to speak of the young intellectuals seem to suddenly come into power. And the year, though, is 1917, right. the time of the First yeah. World War. Yeah, wars have a way of bringing out that characteristic in the uh, technical intelligentsia. And I think it's very, well, uh, 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 Bourne's uh, description of the intelligentsia of his age fits in a very accurate uh, in a very accurate way, the reaction of many academic intellectuals to uh, the call to Washington in the early 1960s with Kennedy. Again, there was a great hunger for power, a desire to be close to the center of power and to use it in a pragmatic way without much, without any concern for the quality of the ends being sought. Uh, these merely were taken for granted. They were given by higher authority. And the in intelligentsia, to a large extent, saw it as their task to, uh, to achieve those ends most, uh, most effectively. Uh, that is invariably uh, leads to tragedy. He also points out those who might be described as the malcontents. Here too, 1917, 
irritation at things as they are, disgust at the frustrations and aridities of American life, deep dissatisfaction with self and groups that give them themselves they, the fact that here is a hopeful note, and they are not, uh, writes Randolph Bourne in 1917, barbarians, as some of the young dissenters are called the new barbarians, but seek the vital and sincere everywhere. Yeah, I quoted those remarks because I thought that they were a good characterization of the uh, conflict that's now developing between uh, between young people who are sickened by what they see and the uh, uh, technical intelligentsia who are, to a large extent, their teachers, uh, who've created, the, who've helped to create this this uh, uh, rather awful picture. Because you're citing throughout, you cite chapter and verse, and they're horrendous too and startling, maybe not too startling anymore of the academicians of various universities who either work with the State Department or some governmental, who use the euphemisms, you know. Uh, since, since linguistics is your field, yeah. I'm sure you find this very fascinating. Your book is very ironic as well. Well, I think that uh, perhaps in this book I may have exaggerated the role that uh, the academic intellectuals play. I think, of course, they're closer to home to me, and uh, uh, what they do is, in a sense, more important to me, which, and, and I think it would be a fair criticism of the book to suggest that, to say that I may have suggested, may have exaggerated the, the actual impact they have on the formation of policy. But one role that they play, which I think is important, is to give a, uh, an air of plausibility to policies that are initiated from a very different source. And they give this air of plausibility to it by the uh, technical expertise that they claim to bring by the kind of terminology that they use to describe it, by the general uh, tendency in our society to trust experts to come out with the right answers to things. So if the experts say we should have uh, saturation bombing of uh, Vietnam, then who am I, a poor slob in the streets, to tell them that he's wrong? Well, of course, the, as uh, the example of A.J. Musty shows perfectly well, the, there are no experts in the question of how to interrelate, uh, of how to relate to other people and to their strivings for freedom. These are, uh, th th there is no expertise in that matter. That's uh, something that has to, where one has to uh, take a stand on the basis of his conviction and his understanding. You're talking about this guy uh, who is not the expert. He may be the man driving the cab. He may be the, uh, the waitress. He may be uh, the maintenance guy. He may be the accountant for that matter. The man up there, he must know, and often you hear this. And the man up there also has the academicians at his side to provide the language. That seems so professorial. Yeah, you know, there's some really striking examples of this. For uh, I don't know, I read a couple of, a couple of months ago there was an article in Science, you know, a very good journal of the AAAS, American Academy for Advancement of Science, which was a oh a very dispassionate, objective study of the effects of defoliation in Vietnam. And as a technical study, I'm sure there was absolutely nothing wrong with it. But in a sense, it was a kind of a horror story. I mean, here is a man who goes to Vietnam and studies perfectly dispassionately the effect of uh, this defoliation uh, policy, which by now has destroyed maybe 16% of uh, Vietnamese forested area, and uh, nobody knows how many, perhaps a thousand square miles of, of crop growing land. And he investigates the question of whether, in fact, this will uh, destroy, whether this will destroy the, uh, this will turn it into a desert, you know, permanently, uh, what effect this will have on the ecology, I mean, whether the people will be able to live. And, you know, perfectly, uh, he never, he never mentions the fact that, that, uh, the, the quality of what we are doing to the people who live there, the character of this, this, this biocide that we're carrying out in, in their land. That's not, you know, that's not his business. I mean, his business is something else, namely to give a technical, careful, accurate investigation of, of the effect of our policy. Now, you know, the reliance on experts is, in effect, the, uh, is, is, is granting to policymakers uh, the option of carrying out any policy that they choose for whatever reason, uh, and uh, uh, it's saying that the only kind of criticism that can be raised of this policy is the question, uh, is criticism based on the question of whether in fact it's working, whether some other policy might be more effective, uh, you know, whether this policy is leading to unwanted effects and therefore we try something else. I mean, the, the criticism that ought to be raised by the citizen, the criticism that it's his responsibility to develop, Namely, what are we trying to achieve? You know, what are the ends of policy? Why are we, uh, why are we sending our, why are we uh, sending our military force to interfere with the lives and, uh, and and the world of these people? That's that's that that these questions are put to the side because, of course, these, as I say, these are not questions where 
there is any expertise that can be brought. Yeah. Of course, this is the recurring theme of all your essays here, that our motives, I never question, and some representatives, whether in political life or in the academy, are shocked that our motives be questioned. And you, you point out this is the case in uh, uh, Lord Cornwallis in India, yeah. uh, the Japanese in Manchuria, yeah. the parallel applies here too. Yeah, see, that's something that's very, stri it's very commonly said and correctly that, uh, that Americans are not uh, trying to conquer the word world out of malice, they, that we're not intervening in other countries in order to destroy them, you know, that really we have their best interests at heart. Of course, I think to a large extent that's true. That's certainly true of the common man, so to speak, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's true of a lot of the people who develop policy as well. What, we do, what uh, American historians and uh, political analysts somehow keep secret or don't know themselves, perhaps, is that this has also been true of virtually every other imperialist aggressive power in history. Uh, every, when the British moved into India, let's say, and uprooted and destroyed Indian society, they did it with the best of motives. Uh, they were just bringing to the Indians uh, the kind of society that they knew perfectly well was the best kind, because that's the kind they had, you know, that's the kind that fit their interests best, so obviously it would be best for the Indians. Uh, uh, the, the Japanese are, uh, are another example. In fact, you know, even, even the apologists for Nazi Germany uh, spoke about how, uh, though this and that was wrong and unfortunate and so on and so forth, nevertheless, Germany represented the, uh, the spiritual hope of uh, Western civilization, and it was the most spiritual civilization since the Greeks, and uh, therefore it's uh, for the benefit of the human race that uh, the Germans should, uh, you know, succeed in, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, establishing their, their hegemony and so on. I mean, it's very rare that, that any, uh, I mean, nobody likes to think of himself as a, uh, you know, a gangster or a cutthroat. I mean, people develop uh, a, 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 an ideology, a set of beliefs, a way of looking at things that makes it appear that what they're doing is really for the good of the people in whose lives they're intervening, whose lives they're affecting. And we're no different than anyone else in that Professor respect. Chomsky, Noam Chomsky is our guest, and uh, uh, the, the conversation is round and about the themes of his essays, American Power and the New Mandarins, powerful work, might I suggest, uh, vintage, the publishers, uh, on the subject of uh, meaning well. You know, someone's a little, little, little difference between doing people good and doing people good. Yeah. You know? But the, uh, Woodrow Wilson, a professor at Princeton in 1902, <laughs> was speaking about those other people, uh, teaching them to be like us, self-restraint, and right. keeping them down, and meaning well, no doubt. Oh, yeah. We were going to, when, you see, he was speaking, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting quotation, I think he was speaking of the Latin Americans, actually, but that was just at the time when we were fighting a war in the Philippines, which was very similar to the Vietnamese war today, in fact. Uh, and, of course, at that time, we were... Uh, we killed about hundred. Uh, it's if you you know if you sort of remember your high school history, you perhaps have the impression that we were fighting against the Spanish in the Philippines. But of course that wasn't true at all. The Spanish were all gone. We were fighting against the Filipinos. Uh, we were fighting against the Filipino independence movement in 1898 through 1904 or five, and we killed about a hundred thousand Filipinos in the course of bringing to them the uh, values of Western civilization, which is what we claimed we were doing. We were saving them from the savage uh, heathen, the savage Moros. And in the, it was in, 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 in that context that Woodrow Wilson spoke about uh, our benevolence in bringing the, uh, uh, the attitudes of uh, Western commercial society to the uh, Latin Americans so that they could, mm. could advance. And, you know, this kind of thing, which is very typical, reminds me of, always reminds me of a very apt statement that was made by the premier of Salon, uh, Mrs. Bondarenaike, a couple of years ago. Uh, she said that she thought the best form of foreign aid that uh, the United States could give to other countries of the world was to keep their ha its hands out of their affairs. And I think that's quite accurate. Mm -hmm. and there's some, isn't there one difference? The seeds were always there of the academician Randolph Bourne's day, Woodrow Wilson's from five, fifteen years before saying it. The difference now is technological development, isn't it? That makes perhaps the... Well... Even more detached. Uh, for one thing, there's no doubt that uh, technology has advanced considerably. The social sciences as a technique of uh, control and domination have advanced to some extent, not as much as they claim to. Uh, but one thing that's changed is our tendency to rely on experts, our awe of expertise, which is so common now, and in some sense justified. I mean, if you want to build a bridge, you, you, know, you rely on the engineer. If, if you have a sickness, you rely on the doctor. But this, uh, an, in a highly specialized, advanced industrial society like ours, it makes a good deal of sense to pay attention to experts in particular areas. Now, this awe of expertise, of course, gives the technical intelligentsia a new role in 
protection of policy because they can capitalize on our general awe of expertise to make it appear uh, that when we intervene in the affairs of another country, we're simply doing it uh, under the control of the best uh, of the best educated, most uh, uh, you know the uh, the, the best uh, students of the situation. So therefore, who can object? Sometimes this reaches almost you know really crazy proportions. I read a, uh, a John Fairbanks, who's the sort of dean of uh, China scholars, you know, gave a speech at the last American Historical Association. Uh, it was just reported recently in the Boston newspaper. Uh, I, I, I don't, uh, that's the only place I saw the text. I don't know if, they, I can't guarantee that they quoted him correctly, but according to what, the way they quote him, he said that, uh, something like this, he said that many people have, uh, that many students and professors uh, make a lot of noise about the war in Vietnam and they protest and so on and so forth, but he said none of them have had the moral integrity and the courage of their convictions to demand that we have better uh, uh, programs in which we study uh, Vietnam. He says if we're if we're going to the least we can do for these people, you know, whose lives we're destroying, whose country we're tearing apart, is to understand them. And he ends by saying, uh, when are all these people going, going to shut up and get to work? So his recommendation to the uh, academic, to the student, to the scholar, to the citizen is, you know, shut up and study the Vietnamese. Let somebody else do the, you know do the job of tearing their society to pieces, we study them. That's the best gift that we can It's do. hard to believe whether he said that ironically or seriously. And this is one of the points you raise, too, throughout your, your essays, is the, is it a joke or is it true? Well, you know, it's sometimes very hard to know, and I did put in a couple of footnotes there when I said uh, I wasn't quite sure whether what I was quoting was meant seriously or was meant as irony. If it's meant seriously, then it's very bad. If it's meant as irony, of course, it's a testimony to what I'm talking about rather than an instance yeah. of it. But seriously, on, on the, on the uh, now seriously, if we can say, on this matter of schools and teaching us about Vietnam, you suggest in one of your essays, remember that, isn't it, it's about our, I suppose, our not teaching our young the truth of the yeah. culture and the history of this country and the depredations in it by invaders for thousands of years would be equivalent to the French not teaching them children about Algiers or the Russians about the Hungarian uprising or Czechoslovakia, yeah. for that matter. Although, you know, I, I, I'm of two minds about that, frankly. I think it's true that by not teaching the truth, we give a very false picture of our own uh, history and of our own nature, in a sense. On the other hand, you know, to a certain extent, we do teach the truth, and the effects are really, really startling. Uh, in this article that uh, you have over there, I quoted some... Uh, I should point out the article yeah. is a, a, an astonishing and powerful one after Pinkville in the most yeah. recent issue of the New York Review of Books by Noam Chomsky. Well, it, it includes something which really shocked me when I saw it. I... I mentioned in the article that I had read a statement by a very good Pakistani social scientist, Iqbal Ahmed, who had pointed out that uh, it just strikes him as so shocking that America turns, makes, makes games and, uh, out of its genocide and turns the extermination of the Indians into the object of children's play and children's stories and so on and so forth. Uh, well, this seemed like a strong statement, and I happened to be looking. My, my daughter is in the fourth grade at a uh, very good public school, and I was uh, looking through her social science textbook and I came across this incredible story of how the New England uh, Indians had, uh, the, New, the New Englanders had the, you know, the pilgrims and so on, had wiped out uh, an Indian tribe, you know, just sort of decimated it, destroyed it. And the story is told just a matter-of-fact way. And then the, uh, you know, the story is about a, a kid named Robert who's learning about the glories of New England, New England history. And he listens to this story about how the settlers sneaked in and, you know, killed, all, killed everybody and burned down the village and drove them away and how from that time on the Indians knew what good fighters the white men were and didn't bother anyone. And his reaction to this is to say, I wish I were a man and had been there. And that's the end of that story. So, you know, we're telling the truth in a way, but think of the, the effect that this has on, uh, on, on uh, assuming that kids pay attention to what they're taught in school, which is perhaps questionable, but if it has any impact, the impact is simply to habituate them, to make it seem that it's all right, it's natural, it's proper for us to carry out uh, uh, acts of extermination against the lesser breeds. You know, The casualness of the story that you tell was horrifying. I remember reading it, and I must tell you that it was the textbook, a little uh, children's book of a local publishing house. I called up the lady after reading oh. your piece. She, this lady I know, Goodman, was astonished, indicating also the casual nature, how it passed through the hands of some people who don't notice it at all. Well, I'll give you, you see, when I saw that, uh, I showed it to my wife, and she was shocked too, and... Uh, uh, I have to admit, I then showed it to my daughter, who had just had that section, and she hadn't noticed it either, uh, which s shows that in a sense, perhaps I'm a, 
you know, I, I think that uh, it's very, as I said, it's very questionable what effect this has on kids. They may not pay attention well, to what goes on in school. Then, you know. then possibly but, subliminally. But subliminally, I think. That, well, anyway, my wife went to talk to the uh, teacher, you know, at the school. And uh, she showed it to the teacher. She said, you know, she said, do you think this is the right kind of thing to teach kids without any comment? And the teacher looked at it, and she hadn't noticed it either. You know, she had just taught that section, and she hadn't noticed there was anything funny about it. In fact, it sort of, you know, went in one ear and out the other as far as she was concerned. She looked at it, and she read it, and she agreed that this was sort of pretty horrible. But then she turned to my wife and said that, of course, you have to understand that not everybody is liberal the way you and I are. So, of course, for other people, we still have yeah. to keep teaching this. So we come again to that acceptance. Of course, this is, this of necessity leads to uh, our attitude and other people and other culture, does it not? Yeah. You point out after Pinkville, the seeds were always there. But again, we come to more and more expertise as the world becomes more and more technologized. Yeah, and I think that what people have got to start to understand is that although, of course, technical expertise has its place and uh, uh, there is important knowledge being developed, nevertheless, the fundamental issues that affect human beings and, and their interrelations, these are where they always are. We have no more understanding of man and society than... Uh, people had a long time ago, and as far as as the fundamental values that ought to determine our policy as a nation or as individuals or as communities, uh, there is no expertise about this. The expert on this is the citizen, and he's so, got to take responsibility so for it. So it comes back to him again, to the person listening, to you, to me, even though you yourself are a, an eminent scholar. The fact is, it comes to everybody, and you, you, you cite to Tocqueville here a remarkable, a prescient comment on his part that in America, here he was, seeing in his early days, never saw as much freedom of discussion nor as little independence of mind. So we come to that, don't we? Yeah, I think we have a remarkable degree of, uh, of freedom in the society, I think. Uh, certainly for the relatively affluent and for those who are white, there's, uh, there, there's a high degree of, uh, of, uh, uh, of guarantee of individual rights and preservation of individual rights. Now, you know, a lot of people point to this and say, well, you know, this shows how much better we are than, let's say, uh, Nazi Germany or one or another place, and, and, and of course that's correct. I mean, there's no, no, no comparison whatsoever. But, you know, when an immoral accounting is going to be, has to be made, I think that we, uh, it hardly counts in our favor that we have the ability to discover what's happening, the freedom to talk about it, the freedom to act, and we don't do so. Uh, this is the real crime. And you point, then again, to one of your key essays, the responsibility of intellectuals, that in the Western democracy he seems so privileged, then he, of all, should be held most responsible, if anyone is more responsible than others. Yeah, and I think you that... Cite, uh, and then you cite the astonishing cases of uh, see, I'd be, immorality by default. I mean, I, I think it's that uh, intellectuals have... Uh, they have the kind of privileges in the United States that every human being ought to have. That is, they have free access to information. They have a good deal of security. They have uh, a great deal of latitude to speak out. And, uh, and in fact, you know, even if they get involved in things like uh, resistance, as I personally believe they should, even if they, uh, they uh, uh, take direct action to uh, confront uh, the state and to try to put an end to the violence of the state, thereby subjecting themselves to legal processes, still, of course, it's... You know, they're in, in, no, in no sense in the same situation as, let's say, uh, their, con their counterparts in the Soviet Union. I mean, you know, if, uh, after the Czech invasion, uh, half a dozen Russian intellectuals uh, stood in Red Square for five minutes uh, in silence, and uh, they're now in Siberia for a couple of years. Uh, that's not going to happen to people here. They can get involved in... Uh, they, they can, and I believe should, refuse to pay their taxes, uh, support resistors, uh, you know, carry out any, any reasonable acts that they can to put an end to, to, to the atrocities and the violence that are carried on by the state. And what's more, they can do so without the fear that they're going to be sent to Siberia or to gas chambers or uh, to be subjected to very severe uh, penalties. All the more reason, then, why, one, why uh, they, are, they, have to sh they have to face the moral responsibility of, and the, uh, uh, why they have to be held to account, in fact, for their failure to do so, for my failure, for all of us. I think this is true. We come to something... Another theme in a moment. Professor Noam Chomsky is our guest, professor of linguistics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, the conversation is based upon his essays in a new book issued, paperback, Vintage, uh, American Power and the New Mandarins. Basically, he's talking about intellectuals in our society in this last third of the 20th century. 
and responsibility. Censorship, self-ethical uh, openness, perhaps. Yeah, I think uh, one aspect of this, uh, of the very uh, favorable circumstances in which we can live if we choose, those who have a college education and uh, who are the right color and so on, is that it's very easy to put the problems of the world uh, uh, outside, to forget about them, to get lost in one's uh, one's work and one's privileges. That's the specialist again, isn't there? Yeah, especially when you have the, uh, to many people, very appealing opportunity to be close to the center of power and to feel that you have something to do with uh, exercising power. I don't exactly know why this is so appealing to people, but it is, and it's very tempting, obviously. Uh, on the way to the radio station, you were talking about this, your, your, your theory about the intellectual who thinks he's walking in the corridors of power, mm. in contrast to the old stereotypical view of the intellectual as a milk-toasty figure. Yeah, well, I had a very definite, see, I, you know, living in, in Cambridge with, with Harvard and MIT right nearby, it was very striking when, when John F. Kennedy came into office and uh, that he uh, immediately opened up the uh, opportunity to many people from places like Harvard and MIT to come to Washington to play a role or take a share in the in decision-making and uh, hobnob with the great and so on and so forth. And I think that the effect of this on, uh, uh, on, on the universities was was very bad. I think that the effect on policy making was very bad. Uh, it, was, it was almost grotesque, almost one might say obscene, to see how the, this, the reaction that uh, a lot of academic people had to this uh, uh, opportunity to uh, be close to, to the exercise of power. And I think that this is a great part of what Fulbright was talking to in, about in that quote that you, you mentioned before about how the universities have uh, accommodated themselves to the uh, to the centers of power in the society, and have, in, in that respect, abdicated their role. I must say, I've, you know, they have this shuttle airplane that goes up and back from Was to Washington from Boston, and uh, I very often had the feeling in those days that if Eastern Airlines would cut off its shuttle, uh, they would improve the atmosphere at both ends. <laughs> you know. So I'd come back to that thing, thinking they're, they're powerful men, and of course by the very nature of being co-opted by the thing that, that by the as Fulbright says the industrial military established they're supposed to challenge. Yeah, so now it's an academic industrial military academic complex yeah. you might say now. And this is a lot of the reason behind the student unrest of the last couple of years. I mean the uh, kids are aware of this. They don't like it. They're right not to like it, and they're trying to put an end to it. They're trying to. Res I think a great, a very strong. You know, there's all sorts of efforts to find the psychiatric and other reasons behind the student unrest uh, all seems to me beside the point really I mean you know there's a lot of reasons of course when many people do something but I think the main thing behind it is just the the recognition by a very large number of students the probably the mass of them I'd say in the elite universities that uh, that these things are very wrong this is not what the universities ought to be doing and they want to restore it to what they should be you know uh, throughout uh, again double standards are there uh, our we're good they're bad and just as this might be also connected with uh, senior faculty members, those working for the establishment in one way or another, and added to it the students, as they say, we must approach these students like something is wrong with the alienated young, says Irving Crystal, who at the time was subsidized by the CIA. Yeah. And then at the same time, you have professors talking. Oh, something wrong. Professor Rowe suggests yeah. that Canadian-Australian wheat be bought by us so that we won't be able to sell it to China, therefore the people will starve to death, so therefore we can get in that way. So we wonder about the illness of our day. Who is the most ill? Then? That's right. Yeah, I think that's very much to the point. I mean, you know, it's it's really pointless to ask what's the reason for student unrest. The real question that ought to be asked is what's the reason for everybody else's apathy? I mean, the reasons for student unrest are obvious enough. Uh, the war in Vietnam, poverty, hunger, uh, racism, these are reasons for students' unrest. There's no nothing to explain. You know, you have, you have a kid who's free to think and has the intelligence to think uh, and is, a, is sort of basic decent impulses. He'll look at the world and, of course, he'll... Uh, he'll try to change it, and he may try to change it when when real horrors are taking place. He may really throw himself into it. There's nothing to explain about why students revolt and why their students unrest. The real thing to explain is why everybody else doesn't join with them. So you talk about apathy, and now we come to an interesting point. <laughs> I know you know recently there was a Harris poll involving the My Lai massacre. Mm. A majority were more horrified not by the actual slaughter of women and children, but by the fact that it's been publicized. Yeah. See, this is the kind of thing I sort of had in the back of my mind in talking about that uh, incident from my daughter's textbook. Uh, when the Milai story broke, uh, I was a little bit frightened about it. 
because you see my own feeling is that in that in our country and in fact in any country I don't think we're any different than any other people in this respect uh, we could tolerate anything I mean I have a feeling that if it turned out that by mistake let's say we had wiped out everybody in Vietnam you know the wrong bomb went off or somebody pushed the wrong button uh, people would be quite upset for a while and then it would pass you know well you know after all we're decent people it was a mistake I mean anybody can make mistakes and so on and again I don't mean to indicate that there's something unique about Americans in this respect I think that's true of people all over the world it's very they say it's very hard to believe that it's very easy to believe that we're decent honorable people and the guy over there who's a different color and a different culture and uh, very remote well he's a bloodthirsty uh, cutthroat it's very hard to believe that we're the bloodthirsty cutthroats and that that guy over there is really uh, working for social justice and decent ideals and when the milai story did break in mid-november i had the very uneasy feeling that the although there would be an out outcry that the net effect in the long run would be simply to la raise the level of, of tolerance for atrocity because now this event is passed we that we're, we are, we've accepted that we're used to it and now that becomes the sort of constant background against which the next event will have to be evaluated I must say that you know this the Milai story was broken by si Seymour Hirsch you know, he's a very good journalist and he pointed out something rather similar to this in a, in a really magnificent book that he did on chemical and biological warfare a couple of years ago in which he pointed out that uh, he speculated and had a pretty good case I think that the original use of, of uh, tear gas and so on in, in, in Vietnam of, chem of, bio of chemical agents uh, that the government probably rather cynically uh, made use of this kind of habituation that is they first carried out a gas attack and then waited for the uproar and outcry and then said oh well we won't do it again and then after it had settled and uh, people had sort of accepted that a little time went by and then finally they were using it all the time nobody was caring much it had sort of just again become part of the accepted background and that's the really great danger of the exposure of atrocities uh, it's a very double-edged sword so then obviously something is happening to us if a human life is, is of little value in a rice paddy obviously it's of little value in uh, a suburban America let alone a ghetto in America yeah I mean you know the fact that we have come to accept as as passable as tolerable the daily destruction that's carried out by uh, saturation bombing by harassment and interdic interdiction by defoliation uh, in Vietnam the fact that we are you know after all we know everybody in America knows or should know by now that we absolutely flattened North Vietnam we wiped it virtually down to the ground there's nothing left outside the center of uh, you know of Hanoi and Haiphong and even there people are living in rubble even today well you know we just and of course we did this with no military justification whatsoever I mean we knew at the time that you know that this had nothing to do with the war in the south or any only the most remote sense had anything to do with it yet people have accepted this there's no feeling that somehow we ought to you know that we owe reparations to North Vietnam there's no pressure in the country that to say well yeah let's you know let's uh, let's give them huge quantities of funds so that they can rebuild what we've destroyed of course that won't make up for it there's no way of making up for it but at least we can you know we can begin to uh, we can we can offer reparations in fact quite the opposite when the Swedes made some very tentative moves to uh, rebuilding helping to rebuild North Vietnam uh, uh, we immediately began to put you know tighten the screws I mean put pressure on on imports uh, cut back invest you know investment in Sweden and so on and so forth now this is of course I don't know how to quite to scale things on the level of atrocities but this testifies to a degree of dehumanization which I think is quite terrifying and the more this happens you know the more we become as a people uh, removed from from normal standards of human decency and the long-range effects of that are rather frightening to think about and so we come back again to the expert to uh, have perhaps all of us this uh, may have to re I say revise Descartes I feel therefore I am the need to feel now the expert again you, you cite so many we'll come to Schlesinger in a moment mm -hmm. Dieger who says perhaps it is good to bomb the Vietnamese they want to be bombed so they can be free here again we have this is it is he kidding or is he serious you see yeah well I'm afraid that yeah. it's very serious I might say that I left out you know I had some really worse horrors in there in the earlier version and I showed it to some friends and they said you better cut up the, cut this stuff out it looks too zany you know yeah. so I really just left the uh, things that you know weren't so wild that uh, <laughs> so it's quite possible this objectivity with quotes about it this detachment may in a sense be a form of insanity too I think it is I mean this for example one of the well in this after Pinkville article I quoted some 
testimony that's been given before Congress, it's appeared in the congressional record, from Defense Department sources about the way in which they're planning to uh, automate the battlefield in Vietnam. That means to turn the whole country into a kind of an automated murder machine and on which there are electronic sensors scattered over the country uh, which uh, are capable of telling if somebody's breathing or if somebody's perspiring or if, somebody, or if there's something hotter or colder than in the environment to immediately flash the information back to some computer center which will, you know, instantaneously uh, send out some, you know, rain of death on, on this area where something's breathing or something's hotter or colder than its environment. And this is all described with, you know, with great... Uh, well, uh, verve and excitement and, you know, look at these great prospects we have before us and isn't this marvelous and so on. It is an element of lunacy in this. I mean, it's the kind of lunacy that, uh, that we associate correctly with the Nazi technocrat. Uh, and uh, uh, the fact that, to a certain extent, we're moving towards the acceptance of this is a very, very frightening thing, considering our power and our willingness to use it. As, as you say this, Professor Chomsky, I think of another sequence in one of your lectures in the book, uh, the collection of essays, American Power, the new, the new Mandarins is a self-explanatory phrase. These are the new, ma in fact, one of the, I think one of the academicians says is to teach the new Mandarins. Yeah, the Mandarins of the future. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say somewhere along the line, they terrify you more. The one who is, who has the academic explanation for what he does and motives unquestioned, he terrifies you more than Curtis LeMay who says, we'll bomb him back to the Stone Age. He possibly might be reached, whereas yeah. the other is un unreachable. Yeah, I think Curtis LeMay's reaction, I mean, I don't know Curtis LeMay, but that kind yeah. of reaction at least has a kind of a redeeming human quality to it, horrible as this may yeah. be. I mean, that you know, the man is reacting like a human being to something. I think he's reacting in an atrocious fashion, but at least there's an element of humanity there. On the other hand, a person who talks about, you know, talks very dispassionately about the exact amount of power that will be necessary, the exact quotient of pain that we have to create in order to bring them to the knees or to, uh, you know, achieve some end that we set or... Uh, to, to make uh, our policy of, let's say, extermination and domination more efficacious, and who treats this like a sort of an algebra problem. Yes. This person is, is no, you know, he's a machine. He's not a human being anymore. No way to deal with him. The first may be a primitive, somewhat brutish man, yeah. whereas the second is this rabbit, is this yeah. machine, and so they, as you can't talk to a machine, whereas yeah. the man, one way or another, difficult though it may be. Yeah, you, you feel yeah. that you can relate to him as a human yeah. being, I think defy him, but nonetheless he's defying fact, a man rather than a machine. In fact, I think, you know, you can recognize his sentiments. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't think there's any of us so perfect, at least I'm not such, that you don't have similar emotions yourself. Uh, hopefully a civilized man can restrain them, but at least he recognizes them. However, the idea of, you know, of this kind of technical machine which simply uh, works out quotients of pain, this is quite unrecognizable as a human being. Coming back to this matter of apathy and uh, sense of shock being more and more diminished as you, as you are afraid of it, possibly being, with Milai being a beginning and then tolerance higher and higher. Think of um, one of the intellectuals who walked the corridors of power not too long ago, was Arthur Schlesinger. And he, he admitted that this thing about the Bay of Pigs was bad didn't work, pragmatic. And finally he says, I lied. But there was no shock in the academic community. He said, I He blindly said, I lied. Yeah, in fact, you know, the worst thing about, I mean, I, I don't want to exaggerate that. I mean, you know, after all, people lie when they're in office. But I think that the most striking thing about that is that is what he himself said in the, you know, when he had time to think it over six years later and he wrote A Thousand Days. He said there, he took the position and explained his position, which was that he was against the Bay of Pigs uh, uh, invasion. Nevertheless, he felt it was perfectly appropriate for him to uh, pretend that it wasn't an invasion, as he did to the newspapers. But then he says, he explained why he was against it. He says he didn't think it was wrong in itself. He says, if it could have worked, it would have been fine. If we could have had, let's say, a surgical strike and we could have taken out Castro and put in the government we want, well, that would be fine, you know. But the trouble is, it just didn't seem likely that it was going to work. I mean, we were going to pretend that it was a, you know, there was just a bunch of guerrillas, when in fact, of course, it was a CIA-sponsored invasion force. And he said, we'll never get away with it. You know, everybody's going to know. So therefore, let's not do it. Well, the implication is that if the deception would have worked, if we could have carried out a very quick surgical strike, you know, if we could have handled it the way the Russians handled it in Czechoslovakia, then it would have been fine. The only question is, can we get away with it? No, it's very, I think that Arthur Schlesinger is the exact counterpart of some, you know, I don't know who to name, but some, there's some person just like that in the Soviet Union who says, gee, look how we carried off this Czech invasion. I mean, it worked like a charm, you know. No trouble, we didn't have to kill anybody. I don't think they killed a single person. Sent in the troops, pulled them out again, you know, instituted the proper government. Of course, uh, uh, Czechoslovakia is a subject state, but that's not our business. I mean, it worked mm -hmm. fine. Now, that's, that seems to me the exact analog of this. Of this so story. wholly amoral, it's a pragmatic approach. Will it or won't it work? And so, too, the approach toward the Viet his change of after Vietnam, it's not working. 
rather than what in the world are we doing there? Yeah, see, I think, you know, in all of this debate over the years about Vietnam, uh, the hawks and doves are divided largely over the question of uh, can we win? Uh, the hawks say we can, the doves say we can't. And that's just the wrong question. I mean, the question is, should we win? You know, uh, should we even be there? And the, the answer to that is no, we shouldn't be there, we shouldn't win. It would be a tragedy if we won. And uh, the people who say, uh, you know, the, the other discussion, can we win? Well, that's a technical discussion that doesn't interest me. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. It's interesting, this subject now coming up. At the very beginning of this conversation with Noam Chomsky, we heard the voice of A.J. Musty. A.J. Musty called the shot way back in 1941 as World War II. We entered World War II. He says, we now, he spoke of America, will now be in the position. And didn't he raise that very point? Yes, he He's did. terrified of the victor. Then what happens to the victor? What will happen yeah. to us? And what will we learn from? Yeah, the victor feels that force pays. He's, he's demonstrated that force pays, and who's going to teach him a lesson? Uh, words approximately that effect. Well, I think he was very perceptive when he saw in 1941 that if we succeeded, of course he was very strongly anti-fascist, musty, but he recognized, as very few people did, practically no one, that if we succeeded in using force to crush uh, uh, fascism, then uh, what would stop us from uh, entering into the same path that, let's say, Japan was then following in the Pacific? And I, I believe that, to a large extent, we have followed that path. Very, very interesting, incidentally, that when Premier Sato, the uh, Japanese Premier, left uh, his, from his discussion with Nixon uh, last month, he, uh, uh, sorry, I can't quote his exact words, but he said something to the effect that now Japan and the United States will jointly create a new order in Asia. Well, of course, Japan in the 1930s was creating a new order in Asia. Uh, they were excluding us. That's, that's why we went, ultimately that was the basis for yeah. the war. Now they understand better they're going to create this new order with us. Uh, too bad for the other Asians, of course. Yeah. Of course, as, as you're saying, this, uh, again, the startling parallels, that has been more a moral approach between what Japan did in Manchuria, and I must confess you draw a strong case here of what the Germans did. We have to face up again. Can we face up to this truth as to our motives and ourselves? This is really the key question right now, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I have enough faith in this uh, country and, and, it, and the values that are somewhere buried in its past and constitute part of its nature to believe that uh, we can face up to these things. We can begin to study our own history objectively, begin to ask what it is in our society that leads to the to these actions and to the development of an ideology that justifies them. I think, and to a large extent, uh, students in, uh, and uh, other groups like... We'll now turn my portable tape recorder over. My guest is Professor Noam Chomsky of Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Professor of Linguistics. The conversation based on his essays that have appeared in a number of journals, number of magazines, essays, uh, bearing the overall title, American Power and the New Mandarins. And primarily his theme concerns the intellectual in our society and his responsibilities. We continue. And on the, uh, the theme of faith, <laughs> it, difficult though it may seem, faith you spoke of the young and minority groups, others who are questioning and perhaps in that questioning the side we we ourselves two others who are more materially perhaps better off though not spiritually uh we're questioning and you're talking about about group endeavor yeah i think that uh things that have happened in, looking back to the 1960s the what young people did in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and the uh the beginnings of an emergence of a uh, socialist politics, which I think is desperately needed in the United States, uh, with, uh, it had it had very it had libertarian aspects. It had uh, it developed uh, from concern for real human values that all of us ought to respect and try to uh, try to achieve, to try to try to bring into reality and uh, bring to to create the social conditions which enable them to bring bring these to reality and so on. I mean. Uh, I would emphasize in particular groups like that are much maligned and in fact viciously attacked today like the Black Panthers, which I think, I don't know the details, but as far as I understand them, seem to uh, be the germs of a, uh, of a radical and I hope libertarian radical group uh, rooted in another 
sector of the society. I think all of these things are uh, offer a kind of a hope for the future and offer a direction that uh, many others can begin to become involved in and to uh, a, a direction that they can follow to to you know to create what is really needed here, namely a mass libertarian socialist movement. At the very beginning, Musty was speaking of two alternatives of the two, was he not? The possibility of destruction of all our species and the possibility of horizons as yet unseen, you know, with, with nuclear energy for yeah. peaceful use. And the man most responsible, perhaps, for the idea of nuclear energy and the bomb was Einstein himself. And you quote Einstein here. Uh, remember the War Resisters League spoke of by being together, by union, quoting Albert Einstein. Noam Chomsky's quoting Einstein. It relieves courageous and resolute individuals of the paralyzing feeling. Here's a terribly important aspect. Someone who feels he's alone. Uh, resolute individuals of the paralyzing feeling of isolation and loneliness, and in this way gives them moral support in the fulfillment of what they consider to be their duty. The existence of such a moral elite is indispensable for the preparation of a fundamental change in public opinion, a change which, under present-day circumstances, is absolutely necessary if humanity survive. Yeah, I think Einstein was a very wise man, and of course, notice he's talking there about a moral elite, and uh, obviously what he had in mind, I'm sure, is that this moral elite should associate itself with, and in fact become submerged in, a mass movement which develops as part of its own consciousness the attitudes towards uh, human needs and the plan, the plans for creation of a more viable future society, a more decent future society, a more democratic one. That this, uh, that these groups seek to. Uh, seek to uh, create. Now that's the hope for the future, and the question is whether we have the will to uh, follow this path. Because we, of course, uh, involves everyone. Uh, as you point out, Professor Chomsky is a distinguished scholar, so he, in that sense, he's an academician, you might say, but not with a capital A, not detached in that horrendous sense, but very much in the middle of things and fields and American power and the new mandarins by the way is is uh, as a salubrious style of writing but more than that the clarity is there and uh, overwhelming vintage of the publishers of it and, uh, Noam Chomsky my guest thank you very much indeed good to be with you <laughs>